Thank you for listening to the podcasts of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. If you've been helped by these podcasts, we encourage you to make a generous donation to Grace Anglican. You can find out how to do so on our website at graceanglicanonline.com and simply click the Giving tab. Thank you so much for considering it. My family has a variety of rituals that we go through during Advent, and one of them is that we have to watch A Christmas Carol, the 1984 George C. Scott version. It's my favorite. And many of you know the story of the miser who was quite comfortable in his miserliness, but he received the grace of a great dishevelment, a great interruption, a great dis-ease caused by four ghosts, including Jacob Marley, of course, who visited him to shake him into uh, a new way of understanding himself and understanding the world. And I want to speak tonight about a spirituality of dishevelment, because I think many times we associate the word spirituality with a zen-like state, almost like you're in a spa where you're getting a massage and all the knots are leaving your body and there's, there's plinky plunky music in the background playing and the, the smell of patchouli everywhere. You just can't avoid it. Uh, and, but many people think of spirituality that way. Whatever puts you at ease is spiritual. But I think that there's a real place for the spirituality of dishevelment, a spirituality that um, contradicts us, a spirituality that shakes us up. Certainly, Advent is all about dishevelment. Exhibit A, John the Baptist. Um, Mark's gospel, and we read from it tonight, doesn't begin with mangers or magi. It begins with a wild man who has a wild message in the wilderness. And I want to speak only about one verse tonight. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. I invite you to follow along. This is a great summary statement of John's ministry. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let me speak about repentance and forgiveness tonight from John's perspective. Repentance. John dresses like an Old Testament prophet. He wears the outfit that Elijah once wore, camel's hair, leather belt. But he also speaks like an Old Testament prophet. That is preaching about repentance. The word repentance, by the way, is used only 13 times in the Old Testament, but the theme is traced out everywhere within the prophetic material. But the word repentance is not just some Old Testament idea because it's used 47 times in the New Testament, many of them from the lips of John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was a destabilizing figure, always stirring the pot, really coming hard at audiences, whether they were just peasants or Pharisees, or Sadducees, or soldiers, or even the king. He offended the king so much that the king later put him to death. But he was convinced that people are like reptilians, right? They function out of their snake brains. They're a brood of vipers, to quote John the Baptist, and they need to be cleansed from that reptilian quality. So he offered them this ritual in the wilderness that they could engage with water and and repent and and, and the, the water would be an aquatic sign of that change. So I want to speak with you about repentance just for a sec. What does repentance mean? Many of you know that it comes from the Hebrew word shuv, that means to turn, or the Greek word metanoia, which means an internal change. But what does repentance or changing or turning involve? Well, if you were to ask Charles Simeon, the famous Anglican uh, preacher, he, he offers uh, from, the seven, from the 18th century four different points. Four ingredients to repentance. 
And here they are. I love the first one most of all. The first one, untrust your heart. Untrust your heart. Which runs completely contrary to everything we hear now. Because many people believe that salvation, whatever that is, lies within you. And what you need to do is more and more and more and more self-discovery and self-acceptance until you totally worship the self. Simeon says, absolutely not. Your heart is often lovely and it's totally psycho at the same time. You should probably distrust a lot of the things in your heart because according to the prophet Jeremiah, it is deceitful above all things. Watch what you love, friends. You'll be taken down by what you love, not by what you hate. Watch what you love. So untrust your heart. Second, to affirm God's moral architecture within the universe, reflected in Holy Scripture. That is, God has an objective moral framework for creation, and it is true whether we like it or not or feel anything about it or not. Um, so you might really enjoy winning every argument and being quite proud. That's really neat that you enjoy that. But it still goes against the moral framework, and therefore it's reprehensible whether we like it or not. So untrust your heart. Affirm God's moral architecture. Third, confess our deviation. Our deviation from that architectural structure. That is, we take responsibility for having fled from heaven's design. We don't blame other people, we don't blame the devil, we don't blame the government, we own it. It's on us. Lastly, attempt, this is always imperfect, but attempt to function in your life, to try to function with greater health. Health as defined by God, right? So we try to walk it out. That's why John the Baptist in other sermons said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, that we got to see something eventually. It's one thing to have a husband or a wife who keeps saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But they do the same dumb thing all the time and hurt your feelings over and over again. Whatever that is, it's very, very flawed repentance, if it's repentance at all. Untrust your heart, affirm the moral architecture, confess your deviation, and attempt to function with greater health. And so that was John the Baptist's message to these people. And if he were here, I think his effect would be the same as when he was there. I think we would hear him and be incredibly defensive. I think we wouldn't know what to make of him. I think we would feel deeply destabilized and put at, at dis-ease. And I wonder what he would say to us today about the fact that we hoard money and that we own too much and we justify it all the time while people are suffering who live right next to us who could be relieved by our wealth. I think that he would think it's ridiculous that we obsess over political intrigue online and we treat it like a porn addict treats pornography, just keep taking in all of the data. Or I think he would have a fit that we have a sewer for a mouth and we run down everybody. I think that he would freak out about the fact that we have so, um, so many addictions, that, we are, that we're often rageaholics, that we use people sexually, whatever. But I think that we would feel very defensive and on guard and disheveled by him. One theologian writes this, would I invite John the Baptist to dinner? Of course not. What would he say sitting at my table in his skins, licking honey from all my knives? But I need him. And we need him because he sobers us. Friends, real spirituality involves an element of repentance. And repentance is surgical. It hurts before it heals. Just like it would hurt for you to have a cancerous tumor removed from your body. 
It will hurt before it heals. Nevertheless, that's part of his disheveling message. But there's a second part of dishevelment, or another quality of his disheveling message, which is forgiveness. Some people think repentance is sort of John's game. Forgiveness is Jesus' gig. Not true, in fact. Jesus and John shared some of these same interests. Um, and John really did believe that people could be forgiven. He preached about it, according to this passage. Well, John invites people to bypass the conventional means for forgiveness. You may know that Judaism had a conventional means. It involved temples, dead lambs, and blood and priests. And John's calling people away from all of that into the desert, into the devastation, inviting them there to be cleansed, to bathe in the womb of the river, right? To almost have a visual new birth of sorts, to be baptized. Um, and that created a great scandal that John would bypass convention and tell people, no, come out to the wilderness and receive this sign as a sign of your cleansing, renewal, and forgiveness before God. You know, many of us have the faulty assumption that while repentance, or the message of repentance is disheveling, forgiveness always brings comfort and zen-like feelings. Yeah, not always. Not always, friends. I find forgiveness itself, God's degree of forgiveness of sinners, brings disease and destabilization for those of us who have pharisaical hearts. We have no place for it, or we certainly want to limit it or balance it with other messages. Uh, the paralytic that Jesus ministered to, remember what he said to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. What did people do? Freaked out. Later, the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, and he said, your sins are forgiven. What did the crowd do? They freaked out. The parable of the prodigal son, where the rich dad runs toward his crap-covered, slutty son, this deadbeat of a man, to hold him close, forgiving him in front of everybody, didn't go over well with a pharisaical audience. The Pharisees were scandalized, but I find that we too as Christians are often scandalized. I was once speaking with a Grove City College student years ago who said, look, I'm glad I'm here, I, but I have to tell you, I can't go all the way with you here at Grace. I believe in 90% Grace, but I have worked too hard at this. In other words, I have some personal stock in this company and I expect a dividend, you know, based on all of my performance. I think forgiveness to the degree of 100% makes Christians very nervous. They always seek to nuance it, nuance it, balance it. I'm not interested in that at all. Because, friends, let's get very personal about this. Do you want less than 100% forgiveness? Is that what you want? You want 90%? You want to work at this? You want to prove yourself? You want to show God that you mean business? You want him to sort of tether his absolution to your improvement? Is that what, You want that? Just like the Galatians? That's what they wanted. Is that what you want too? Um, because I think if we would want that, John would like tap us on the shoulder. Well, he probably wasn't a tapping guy. He might do one of these to your head. But he'd be like, is that what you want? So I have some questions to, for you since you think that you can cajole this out of the, the tight fist of God, evidently. Um, are you good? Are you noble? Are you really virtuous? Are you working at it? Are you improving day by day? How's your prayer life? How are your disciplines? Are you really serious about this stuff? Are you playing games? How's your relationship with your mother or your sister or your father? How's your marriage? I wonder how your sex life is like. What have you looked at on the internet? Yeah, I really want to know. I think he would ask us things that would flatten us and accuse us before the throne of ultimacy to the point that we say, I have nothing in my hands. 
There is none righteous, no, not one, not even me as a Christian. John the Baptist is here to unveil the human need. The human need of the peasant, the human need of the Pharisee. Why? Because he is preparing the way for someone else. He's preparing the way for the great professional pardoner. He's preparing the way for the pardoner. And repentance means we turn away from ourselves and look at the pardoner. Many Christians have a narcissistic understanding of repentance, which means we turn from self to self. We turn from the self that created the problem to the self that's somehow going to solve it. Nonsense. We turn away from self and trust in the validity of someone else and learn from him, get schooled from him, get the new information from him, the new feelings from him, the new kingdom from him, the new functioning from him, and we walk in him. He's better than you are at this. He has a track record. We unfortunately do not. And so John comes with a message of repentance as well as forgiveness. Both are disheveling, destabilizing messages that bring disease within ourselves. And my question to you and to me is, do we permit that at all? A spirituality of dishevelment. There was an interview between Anderson Cooper and late-night host Stephen Colbert. I found it very moving. During the interview, Cooper asked Colbert about a comment he made years ago about learning to, and I quote, love the thing that I wish had not happened. Cooper asked through tears and with great emotion, you said the following, what punishments of God are not gifts? What punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that? Yes, Colbert said. It is a gift to exist. And to exist means to experience some suffering. And he went on to say that the disturbances of this life provide a beautiful opportunity for self-examination and transformation. The gift of dishevelment, the gift of disturbance. Now, of course, God's ultimate goal for you is not for you to be disheveled forever, to give you dis-ease with life forever. No, what he's doing is he's trying to sober us from our false consolations, all our little cheap dopamine and serotonin spikes that last 20 minutes or less. He wants more for you than you want for you. And he won't stop until you get it. He offers us truer consolation. And so I hope we can begin in this Advent to see those difficult John the Baptist moments in life, the ones that destabilize us, as gifts. For what punishments of God are not gifts? For they lead us back to life. They lead us back to the gospel. So friends, give your ears to John and give your heart to Jesus. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could-